I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In Japan, there's been a lot of emphasis and support from the government to kind of push fintechs and attract foreign investment with Tokyo being the next uh, fintech hub, uh, hopefully in Asia. I was going to get engaged in Tokyo. I had the ring in my pocket. It was springtime. The cherry blossoms were out. We were in a rowing boat on the moat around the Imperial Palace. I think I might have even had a little drink of Japanese whiskey to calm my nerves, but we were also shattered. So I held that for another day. But still, Japan is a fascinating place. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. Morris EY, all the way from Tokyo, Japan today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. Now, Morris, Japan is not a market I know well myself, but it's also not a market that I know many people working in. So talk to me about that path that brought you to where you are today in Tokyo. Sure. Just to give some background, I'm originally from Los Angeles, but I had the opportunity to work both in US and Japan throughout my career. 20 plus years, primarily with Citigroup in their credit card business, both here in Tokyo as well as uh, New York. But what really brought me to Japan is my roots uh, here in Japan. So I've been traveling back and forth between uh, US and Japan since I was uh, little. And I've always been fascinated by the market and the country and, and the people and how it's so different from US and other Western markets. So after college, I decided to move to Japan and start my career here. Yeah, Morris, you spoke about being fascinated by the market. I think that that is what it is. It's a fascinating market. And I think quite unique because Japan feels at once very familiar, but also entirely alien. I mean, I remember growing up in South Africa and the daily news reports would include an update on the Nikkei market and the exchange rate to the yen. The Japanese market was a pillar of the global economy. And if I think to all three of my degrees at some stage or another, there's been a case study uh, on the Japanese housing and mortgage situation and deflation and inflation. But actually, if I think about on the ground, Japanese people going about their day-to-day lives, I actually have no idea what the consumer finance, the consumer credit landscape looks like. So if you don't mind giving us the very basic 101 introductory course, what does that Japanese credit market look like? And how does it differ in in your sort of dual experience from what we know maybe more broadly of the U.S. market? Sure. So Japan is a very mature market, but it loves cash. The population is about 125 million people. It's very highly banked. E-commerce penetration is very high. There's a very, um, I would say, advanced payment uh, infrastructure. Credit card penetration is also very high. I want to say about 65 to 70% which is the probably the most popular form of uh, digital payments. Having said that, it's a very cash-based society. People still like to use their cash. And there's a deep cultural aspect to it where people give cash during holidays and special occasions. 
but the love for cash has been changing over the past, I would say, five to 10 years with new digital payments, especially with COVID and the pandemic, where there's more, more and more people accepting and more people willing to pay with their mobile phone through digital payments and understand the convenience and the value of not you know, having to withdraw money from the ATM machine every time, even though it's super safe here in Japan. I remember my time in Hong Kong, the banks were bringing out the digital IC packets for the New Year celebrations, because also that was such a fundamental part of the culture, the handing over of new banknotes. But yeah, Morris, one thing I would like to get a sense for as well is the fintech space, because for me, Japan, it's the source of some incredible innovations in consumer electronics, in automobiles, and even just in things like popular culture. But when it comes to fintech, I can't think of any Japanese brands or Japanese fintech products that jump to mind. And this is despite the fact that some of the really big players in terms of the VC market are Japanese, these Japanese mega banks. So is that a fair assessment? Is the fintech that you see primarily localized? Yeah, I think it's fair to say there's not too many fintechs that are kind of venturing abroad. The one that I do know of is called Omise. O-M-I-S-E, acquired a company recently in the U.S. They're in the payment space. But to talk about the fintechs locally here in Japan, broadly, they cover a number of different categories that are very similar to the Western markets. They're primarily in payments, cryptocurrency, blockchain, data aggregation, PFM, um, and other financial services. I would say some of the bigger headlines over the last few years have been fintechs like Money Forward, Free, and Zyme and these fintechs that offer cloud-based uh, software, which they help really automate back office uh, tasks for certain companies with expense management, invoicing, and so forth. And then followed by, I would say, new payment providers like Base or Pay.jp. They are e-commerce platforms that helps merchants process car- credit card payments and, and so forth. And they've also launched a form of buy now, pay later or deferred payment option as well. And then crypto as well as some of the personal financial management PFM providers like Money Forward, Money Tree, which are slowly kind of evolving more into that data aggregation space where they're providing insight to different clients and really help them kind of grow their business through API-based uh, solution. Yeah, and so some of these fintechs, while they're small, they're still growing. There's been a lot of emphasis and support from the government to kind of push fintechs and attract foreign investment. And there's a number of conferences that they're hosting here in Japan, most recently with growth industry. And then there's a few coming up next year with City Tech Tokyo in February and Sushi Tech Tokyo, with Tokyo being the next uh, fintech hub, uh, hopefully in Asia. Yeah, well, let's sort of place that in the bigger context then as well. You've spent a lot of time working both on payments and on credit. And that includes the fintechs, but also the very traditional products we all know so well. And so when we think about how Japanese consumers are buying goods and paying for goods, what products are people gravitating towards and what sort of providers uh, are behind those products? Sure. So as I mentioned, you know, digital payments is growing in popularity. The government is aiming for 40% cashless by 2025, which kind of aligns with this Osaka Expo that they're going to be hosting. So 40% is the target. Right now, it's about 36% in terms of digital payments. And that includes credit cards, debit cards, uh, QR payments, and other forms of non-cash payments. 
I would say, you know, back 10, 20 years ago, you couldn't go around uh, with just, you know, your mobile phone. You always had to have cash on you. But now more merchants accept credit cards and other digital payments. Just recently, there was a report by Asahi News where Japan reached about 830 billion US dollars in terms of cashless payments, right? And the market is growing about, I would want to say, you know, five to six percent every year. And what that means is there's a big opportunity for fintechs and other up and coming new payment providers here in the Japan market. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because, as you said, it's a mature market, but there's aspects of it that are from days gone past. Now, my uneducated view of the Japanese market is a market that is relatively well off and relatively conservative in terms of financial decision making. And so it doesn't strike me as a hotbed of consumer borrowing in things like personal loans, cash loans. But what is the reality of that? Generally speaking, the Japanese are very debt adverse, right? They don't want to overspend, overborrow, right? And that has been really the trend that we have been seeing for the past, you know, few decades. But what I will say is with, you know, wages very stagnant, the economy not growing, core inflation rising, more and more customers, I would say, are looking to be able to manage their finances, right? Whether that's through PFMs or through buy now, pay later. But certainly not to the extent like US and other markets where probably 50% is revolving. Here in Japan, only about 7% of outstanding balances actually get revolved or paid in installments. Right? And so that's a reflection of how the Japanese consumers right, really want to use their credit card and pay it off as soon as possible and not have to pay any interest. But that certainly brings opportunities for buy now, pay later companies where they are interest free for consumers. Yeah, well, let's talk about buy now, pay later in Japan. And what have you seen over the last few years as that industry has grown? Yeah, buy now, pay later, as we know it in terms of interest free installments, right, is still relatively new. It was in- introduced by PayD in October 2020. So only it's only been around for three years. And the reason why there's such a big opportunity here in Japan is although there is your traditional point of sales credit card installments, similar to Mexico and Brazil, credit card issuers charge an APR anywhere from 12 to 15%. And because of their legacy system, they are not able to offer interest-free installments at the point of sales, like buy now, pay later companies. So there is uh, companies like PayD, which was acquired by PayPal. And they have about 24% market share. They've been growing over 200% over the past couple of years. Uh, They partner with Apple, Amazon, and some of the biggest retailers here in Japan. So certainly there's a demand both on the merchant side, right, who are willing to pay that fee and consumers that are looking to split their payments and manage their cash flow. In the buy now, pay later space, it's predominantly the local players uh, here in Japan with net protections as the biggest provider of buy now, pay later, but really in the form of deferred payment, the ability to pay in full at a later point in time, and not really your typical interest-free installments. The other, they're not an overseas uh, fintech. They are a Japanese company, but managed by, you know, folks with international experience and people from overseas is SmartPay, which launched, uh, I want to say, back in 2021. And they're quickly expanding here in the uh, Japanese market, partnering with different uh, retailers, clothing brands, electronic stores, and so forth. 
right? And it's very popular with e-commerce where people want to buy clothes or makeup and they want to try it on before they actually make any payments. And it's super easy, super convenient to use. You don't have to enter your any credit card information. It's a very simple credit underwriting process. And, you know, you don't have to deal with the headache of any uh, chargeback or uh, disputes or anything like that with your credit card issuers. So that has been very, very popular for a very long time. But now it's kind of migrating into that interest-free installment space um, that I mentioned about earlier. The new buy now, pay later use cases, particularly around sort of access to fashion and, and, and easy, convenient spending seem quite similar between Japan and, and, say, the U.S. Yeah, that's right. Certainly, the BNPL market here in Japan has been growing. It's a $12 billion uh, market in terms of U.S. dollars, and it's uh, expected to grow 15% year over year, according to Yano Research. But I would say that over the last two, three years, it's really been propelled with Payti's uh, services and you know their partnership with some of these uh, big uh, retailers. And so we're seeing that uh, shift, and I think we're going to continue to see that growth. And is that having any impact on the traditional credit products, things like personal loans, cash loans? Yeah, so that's a great question, Brendan. So what I would say is, having looked at some of the market data, when we look at your large credit card issuers or across the board, really, the outstanding balances is about $36 billion in terms of unpaid balances or anything longer than two months, right, where uh, these financial institutions are charging interest. That $36 billion has been pretty much stagnant over the last seven years, right? It has not been growing, but for many different reasons. But I would say in terms of installments, certainly the buy now, pay later companies have been taking up more share. And it's something that, you know, these large issuers cannot really continue to ignore anymore, especially because these fintechs have kind of demonstrated their place here in the market. And the consumer demand is kind of showing that, you know, there is certainly a need to manage finances, split up payments. And so, yeah, definitely there has been some impact in terms of the credit market. But having said that, obviously, buy now, pay later still represents a very, very small share. And it will take some time to catch up. But certainly, it presents a lot of opportunities for these fintech buy now, pay later companies. Especially if I think about tap to phone, right? On Apple, on Google, certainly I think there's an opportunity there in that physical space where perhaps, you know, more and more customers can use buy now, pay later at physical stores. When we think about people living their day to day, going about their lives, is e-commerce a big portion of spend or is it a culture that's uh, in-store based? Oh, definitely. E-commerce has kind of accelerated post-COVID. It's going to reach about $243 billion, if I'm not mistaken, and it's growing 6% uh, year over year. Some of the beneficiaries obviously have been Apple Pay, Google Pay, Amazon Pay, Doctem Pay, PayPay, and others. But yeah, there's a huge um, demand for e-commerce, especially with cashless and the government promoting um, digital payments. And let's talk about the risk side of things. When a lender is looking to make a loan or extend credit to a Japanese consumer, what sort of tools do they have at their disposal to to measure risk? Are there credit bureaus, credit bureau scores? It's very similar, I would say, to other markets in terms of looking at basic information about the customer in terms of declared income, right? Their age, years of employment, and, and so forth. And also, how much debt do they have outstanding? So I think where it, it's different is there is no FICO type score here in the Japan market. There is no bureau 
or agency which provides a standard scoring for all financial institutions. The local bureau, credit bureau here in Japan, although they provide data, it's really on negative payment behavior. And so I would say it's very limited compared to other Western markets. And that is, I think, one of the opportunities. Yeah, well, let's sort of move that way because one of those opportunities, typically speaking at least, is open banking. And I know that you've been looking at open banking as well. So kind of while we're on that topic, what does that look like as a, as a data source in Japan? How far along its journey is open banking? It's still in the very early stages. And there's a few reasons for that. And number one, it is not a regulatory-driven market like Europe, where you have PSD2 requirements, right? It's more market-driven. And that means you have to have participants that are willing to share their data. And so because the Japan market is dominated by these mega banks who account for 60-70% of the market, right? I, I, I do believe they have a lot more to lose than to gain when it comes to data sharing. And I believe that one of the other uh, challenges is that over the past few years, there's been a lot of companies where they have abused their privilege and used customer data without their consent. And that has put a lot of negative in terms of the general public. And so there's a number of uh, challenges, I think, in terms of open banking. But what I would say is if I were to look at open banking broadly from two different perspectives, one is the AISP account. Uh, information sharing, and PISP, which is the payment side of things, account sharing has been getting traction, especially with PFM players, where customers do see the value of giving consent to be able to kind of consolidate all their financial information into one app to be able to see the credit card balances, bank statements, and so forth, but less so on the payment side of things. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know, outside of your typical or smaller fintech players, um, there are challenger banks or digital banks like SBI, Sumishin, Neo Bank, who are partnering with major retailers and offering banking as a service. So when you visit these e-commerce sites, you're able to kind of open an, a, a bank account and be able to make deposits and pay through that form of digital channel. These digital banks are becoming very, very creative in terms of how they're growing uh, here in Japan. And then the other one I want to mention really is over the past three to five years, QR payment has been really accelerating where you preload or prepay your account through your bank and you're able to use 
your phone and pay at convenience stores and other merchants. And that has really kind of created a lot of challenges for some of the larger um, credit card issuers. And their success is really tied to, you know, how easy it is to download the app and and sign up with very little uh, information that you need to share to open up an account accepted at thousands of stores. And it's very popular with the um, the younger demographics. And these QR payment providers like PayPay are really forming into what I would say these financial super apps where they're like a digital wallet. You can set up a digital bank account and you can do you know free P2P money transfers. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because if I simplify the world, we've kind of got the two models where you know, the front end, it might seem the same, you know, I've got Apple Pay on my phone, but in reality, that's still going through the credit card and thus still going through one of the big banks. We saw emerging in China, and it sounds like is the situation more in Japan, is that the people that own that journey, the app itself, isn't one of the big banks. Yes, it could be prepaid now, but they see all that transaction data. They see the history with the customer. They see, you know, all the data on the phone from the app. If that information goes out into a different system, not the old credit bureau ecosystem we're familiar with. Suddenly, we're losing insights on our low-risk customers who we may want to provide good offers to. So if I was to place Japan then on this model of the US and the UK where a credit card is stored on your phone to China where it's a financial super app that's doing it and credit cards are struggling to compete. It's still dominated by your credit card issuers. So most people, if they have Apple Pay, Google Pay, they have loaded their credit card, and that's probably the most popular form of payments. But these QR payment providers who have their own mobile apps is very, very popular, and it's accepted everywhere. And while they still represent a very small share in terms of total purchase volumes, they are by far the fastest growing. And that is why issuers are very, very concerned. And it's a closed loop payment. Right. And so credit card issuers and, you know, other bureaus are not able to, you know, see that data. So certainly, you know, it's a worrying concern. And these QR payment providers are also going into that credit space where they're offering a small credit of maybe $500 to $1,000, but they're using very basic information, right? So just your name, phone number, email, right? And so it's much, much faster and easier to apply for that new QR payment credit versus a traditional credit card. And I think it's tempting to think, well, it's just the youngsters and you know, the big banks can say, well, we've still got the, the, the customers with the main spending power. But what we need to think about is the routes into the traditional credit model as well, where you, know, you typically need some credit to get credit. And the exception was always, well, somebody's first job, somebody's just finished university, We'll have a product for them to bring them in and that will solve the problem for most people. But if youngsters are establishing their reputations, establishing their financial history in these apps, when it comes time to buy a house, get a mortgage, buy a car, make some bigger purchase where they do want to go to the traditional bank, those banks need to be thinking about how do they review that customer when the traditional data isn't there, you know, when their reputation is inside this closed loop. How do they onboard them? You can't then, when somebody's 30 and has access to all these products, offer them a very low limit and say, well, prove yourself. Say, well, I've already done that. You know, you need to find a way to compete head to head in a world with asymmetric access to data. The banks have always been the ones who had the data. There's going to be significant groups of customers where that's not true. And, And either you're going to be paying these payment providers a fee 
for for finding new customers and pre-qualifying your customers or internally you're going to have to think maybe it's open banking maybe it's something else but how do i review my customers when they haven't had the chance to slowly build up a, a reputation in my ecosystem and so lessons in there i think and a reason for people to watch what happens in that space morris when this episode goes out it's going to be the first episode of 2024 for this show so a great time to sort of sit down and think about what the future may hold. Japan's a market that's clearly changing quite a lot. It's got some trends that are somewhat unique to it, but also some trends that are maybe leading what we will see in other markets. So as you look ahead and you look at the different things going on in the market, what trends are you following and what developments do you think will be most important? In the consumer finance, consumer payments space, certainly, as I mentioned, the biggest opportunity is this cash displacement. And that's going to continue for the next, you know, I want to say five to 10 years. And that presents a big opportunity for fintechs, right? Where if they can become the next PayPay, Noraktim Pay, right? And provide a digital form of payment that's popular, it's going to take off and it's going to become, you know, mainstream because more and more people are realizing that, you know, there's no need to carry around cash and it's much more convenient and easier to pay with their mobile phone. And in terms of, you know, what's been really kind of popular uh, in the recent, I want to say six to, you know, 12 months is AI, regenerative AI. And that's going to be a, a huge game changer. Because there's so much opportunity here in Japan to optimize and to improve productivity just across the board. And that's just not in credit cards, consumer finance and payments, but really across all verticals and all categories here in the Japan market where people do complain about how things are very manual process oriented and, and things just take a lot of time. And then the other thing I'd point out just real quickly is in terms of you know the B2B side of things. Right now, here in Japan, it's mainly bank transfers. I think only 2% of B2B payments are actually on commercial cards. And so that represents a huge opportunity where if you can get these companies to you know, make payments to their suppliers, vendors using, using their commercial cards, right? it's faster, safer, easier to manage your expenses and so forth. That's, that's a big opportunity. Here in Japan, you know, small, medium business owners, when they apply for a business card, typically the average credit line is about, you know, 1.5 million uh, yen or 15,000 US dollars. And that's just not enough to cover their operating expense and pay um, to their suppliers and vendors, right? And that's primarily because these banks have been using their credit decision models that were, you know, designed from a consumer lending yeah. uh, standpoint and not really from a B2B perspective. So that's where I think there's going to be some opportunities in that underwriting and credit space in terms of B2B. Yeah, that's interesting because if you think about a consumer level, it's it's more equivalent to profit, right? It's how much money is coming in at the end of the month, whereas a business you need to be buying stock and turnover and thinking of you know much higher multiples of that so a lot it sounds like that can happen there in a space that globally is just changing quickly as well so super exciting and then a little bit more bias for me uh, is the cash replacement one which i think is interesting because where we see a lot of the innovation now in cash replacement maybe shaped slightly by my background but we see in emerging markets we're replacing it because cash is risky for theft and inflation just destroys its value and logistically 
if we're looking at markets where there's small value of transactions being done at great distance over bad roads. And so when we think about who could benefit about cash replacement or could provide services with cash replacement in a very different world, a world where values are high and risk is low, maybe there's some opportunity for a fintech or some fintech thinkers born in Africa, born in Latin America to come and see a place like Japan as a, a place to operate. Yeah, that's right. I am really excited about the future here in Japan, especially with the government supporting fintechs, as I mentioned before. And just generally speaking, you know, the market and more consumers willing to use uh, digital payments, whether that's through e-commerce or mobile payments like um, Apple Pay, Google Pay and others. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, and I think there's a big opportunity ahead. And Morris, if people are excited as well, they want to maybe see more of your insights, learn more about what you're doing, or maybe get involved in some of these projects, where can they find you online? You can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to reach out to me and happy to share my point of view, thoughts, and you know my perspective uh, here in the, the Japan market. Well, Morris Iwai, thanks again for making the time to speak to me today. It's a fascinating market and one I think that has yeah, the potential to shape the future, maybe more than we, we think. So thank you again. And thank you all for listening. Please do look for and follow the show on your favorite podcast platform and share the updates widely on LinkedIn. Plus, send me a connection request while you're there. This show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find show notes and written transcripts at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show or just www.htlmts.show, and I'll see you again next Thursday. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.